word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 43. Keep in mind that that means that you are going through part three, or you're beginning part three. So, just remember, you're going to go into part three. cross and my name is pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you dear listeners should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club guess what's tomorrow crossland speaking of weekly what's what's tomorrow pj weekly doesn't matter here tomorrow's monday (laughs) which is weird because we usually record on thursdays tomorrow is the first day of school for me for my final year of engineering school and tomorrow's my birthday pj i was thinking about this the entire time in all of our pre-recording sessions and yes tomorrow is your birthday but it is currently on the east coast 9 40 p.m there is no chance we are done by midnight and i will definitely be wishing you a happy birthday from the east coast before anyone fucking else time travel birthday that's that's pretty sweet (laughs) time travel birthday all right yes so very exciting of course we're excited at this point when everyone else is listening to this this will be released on thursday pj will be a year older Mm -hmm. uh feel free to wish pj a happy birthday on our instagram our twitter i'm sure i'll write up something sappy and awful and pretty shitty yeah you'll probably post a pretty shitty picture of me as well i'm sure i'm totally gonna do the riot fest photo (laughs) oh no (laughs) without a doubt (laughs) okay the question is which riot fest photo yeah there's a (laughs) lot of them some of them are not good some of them do not paint me in a good light. Oh, man. Is there yeah, one of me no. in that birdcage? No. No, no, no. Okay. Well, there good. was not one of you in the birdcage. Right. That's, now we just opened up that giant pile of feathers, yeah, I guess. We're closing, uh, it, anyway. we're closing it back up. It's never being spoken about again. Today is our seventh episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapters 38 through 43. But before we do that, let's talk about what we're drinking. What are you having today, PJ? I believe it was Adam Moldy in our Discord who uh, suggested a side. You sure it's not Moldois? I'm pretty sure it's Moldois. You're right. Yep. I think it's Moldois. Moldois. He suggested a sidecar, <laughs> so that's what I did. Ounce and a half of cognac. I had Hennessy VS. Three quarters of an ounce of orange liqueur. I used Cointreau, which is I think the traditional one to use uh, for sidecars. And then uh, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, all shaken together, served into a sugar rim glass and garnished with a lemon twist and a cocktail cherry. It's delicious. It is my dad's favorite cocktail for a good reason. It's very, very good. Following that up, I've got a New England pale ale from Portage Brewing Company called Table This. So this is their Table This series. Um, This one's Citra. I think it's a single hop beer series, so lower alcohol, just very, very sippable, shareable, drinkable pale ale, all citra and really, really well done, well balanced, decent amount of malt. And then that citra hop comes through like a charm. I'm really enjoying this beer, so happy to have it. But while I drink this, Crossland, will you tell me what you're drinking? Well, PJ, my drink that I have composed for this fine evening is a... 
grapefruit daiquiri, which I, I was just I like had grapefruit leftover because if if I'm going to eat like a fruity breakfast, it's grapefruit. And with everything that was going on this week, I was like, you know what? I should try to like plan out a couple of like breakfast meals that are mildly substantial since my family was going to be in town and whatnot. And that could mean any number of things, including avoiding scurvy. So I bought some grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed to use up one of them that I had left. So what I did is I made a daiquiri with it. So rum, a little bit of grapefruit fresca, bitters, grapefruit squeezed, and a dash of triple sec just for a little bit of the rest of some additional, you know, fruity flavor inside of there. That's actually the only drink that I have tonight because I just made it really strong instead. Right. I mean, there are th- four shots in that thing. Oh, Jesus. So it it's like, it's a big one. That's uh, a heavy hitter, man. Um, That'll be a fun time. And then I, I also grabbed a Topo Chico as a follow up, like something else to drink while I'm while like Chico? between sips of the daiquiri. Topo Chico is just a mineral water, but it's a mineral water from Monterey. It's the Mexican part of California, you know, like the little like tip area. Okay, Tijuana, the whatnot is down there, but it's produced down there. Gotcha. So but fancy, fancy just, shit water. It is the best carbonated beverage period oh but carbonated. it's expensive okay. and hard to find yeah it's it's a mineral water so it's carbonated and then so it's mineral water and then they add carbon dioxide to carbonate it and it is fucking amazing i don't understand i don't understand how it is so much better than you know like an aha or I'm just gonna rant here for a second about how good topo chico is no but it's it's just good so that's my in between that way i don't die by pounding this jackery right away <laughs> Fair enough. So with that, let's move into last week's predictions. We actually have a lot to talk about here, PJ. One is a prediction that I drank for, uh, I believe, a week ago. And that was, is Alexander alive? You said... He succumbed to the Strom. <laughs> you said, no, he's dead. And I drank for it last week. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was hedging my bets. I'm like, all right, yeah. there's got to be there's got to be one time when we don't see a character die and he's actually dead. And you know what? That's not true. So doubling down on the fact that Virginia is still alive, (laughs) that's all that happened to me this week. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. So you drink for that. Yep. Uh, Next prediction here is does the Fear Knight make it out of the battlefield off planet slash really I read this as like does he survive the conflict at hand and you said nope he gets hunted down and the answer was he he's still around. He's definitely definitely still around torturing folks. He's having a having a good time with himself. Yep. And then next up is from Raul Legs thirty two from Reddit. What will Ephraim do faced with fighting against the Republic on the side of the Obsidian? You said I think he'll escape. He packs an Electra. We'll pull something together and abscond before they need to deploy anywhere. And it's safe to say he's deploying somewhere, right? <clears throat> you know what? Has that happened yet? Yeah, it has. I think he yeah, jumped has. out yep, of a yep, warship. He did. He did. Yep. 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 <laughs> Yep. That would be, uh, I, I think deploying would be the right term for that. So, yep. Yep. <laughs> so, big thank you to Raul for the question. PJ drinks because he does not know how to read into scenes well. Mm-hmm. Predict the future. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, uh, you know what? I feel like I'm average at predicting <laughs> the future. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. That was an unearned, <laughs> unearned diss. Because so. you've done fairly well. So, mm. I don't I've done okay. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of gems that have shined through, but most of them are wrong. 
I trick you. you. Uh, I trick you with like long, long things that there's no way I could get all of them wrong, like Deadpool's and stuff. And that right. like brings up my average. But I feel like if you remove those, I'm I'm batting under fifty percent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> and probably i mean i'd be curious i think we we made mention of this but it would be fun to go through and see what the percentage looks like for your accuracy that'd be interesting are you are you really a cassandra or are Absolutely you not. more of a <laughs> are you more no. of a adult all right so chapter 38 lysander the horizon we open up with a flash of dreams <laughs> from lysander Did you just snort something uh, <laughs> i know i like i had to sneeze and i took a breath instead of sneezing and now it's stuck in my nose <laughs> all right i'm gonna restart i'm in pain uh, oh come on <laughs> okay i just like sniffed it out of my nose now we're good i'm not right. cutting so that. chapter what's that you're not, not cutting, cutting that, that. <laughs> damn it chapter 38 lysander the horizon we open up with a flash of dreams from lysander the chair the door and laughter behind it and a bit of poetry from percy bish bish i think it's bish bish <laughs> bish bish percy bish shelley <laughs> um pbs is a poet that you've likely <laughs> read <laughs> Percy Shelley is actually likely a poet that you've read at some point, whether or not you know that. it's He's the writer for the famous Ozymandias poem. He was also married to Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. That was his second wife. He also wrote Prometheus Unbound. He had a huge influence on um, Yeats and Browning, as well as a number of other romantic po- uh, poets of the time, like Lord Byron. But the, but the poem that we're reading, Cancelled Fragments of Julian and Madelow, was one of the few poems that was published posthumously. And specifically, this one actually didn't I did. I don't think it made it into the actual posthumously published poem, but was actually left on the cutting room floor. Um, But it's interestingly enough, it's one of the most quoted bits. He was very influential on Robert Browning, which, if you know anything about me, is a very important poem. He wrote some very important poems to me, including, you know, one mildly influential poem called Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, which another writer turned into a whole book series. That writer's name, of course, is lost. Don't fucking say it. Don't fucking say his name. (laughs) Um, One fucking episode, Crossland. (laughs) <laughs> am i going to be able to escape this uh, <laughs> anyway one of, context, one of my favorite one of my favorite bits of this entire thing is shitting on stephen king like I, for seemingly no reason no because you always talk about him and i have read one short story from him and it was fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah (laughs) i mean i get that (laughs) so man it seems like i've drank so much of this and i've drank none of it i haven't even i've taken one sip that i took before we started recording i haven't oh my god anyway this just shows how deprived of of anyway all right so the the context (laughs) of the poem itself that calendora is quoting seems to imply that their death is imminent but they continue walking in their shackles uh, of towards their eventual end anyway the read on it that that she's saying their death is imminent is really the only way i can really see it that they're really just kind of marching to their doom 
It's also interesting, giving a little bit more background on the poem itself, that Percy Shelley very rarely wrote in this sort of conversational tone that we're hearing here, where this is actually a conversation. We're only seeing one side of this conversation right now, but later in the poem, it gets developed out and you see kind of both people talking back and forth to each other. But I think that that's interesting, especially given the way that this chapter sort of has that same sort of feeling to it, where they're talking, where Lysander and Calendora are having a conversation that kind of mirrors Julian and Madalos, even in, you know, the later bit where he again quotes uh, Percy Shelley back to Calendora. It's got a nice little call response to the whole thing. Definitely. All the poetry with Lysander is a really cool through line. It's nice to see it actually go somewhere as opposed yeah. to just kind of being something that he likes. Have some sort of emotional resonance and kind of a, a payoff. Yeah. Again, this is this is also like another example, too, where Pierce isn't looking for you to you know, know all of the things that I just spouted off about Percy, <laughs> Percy Shelley. But in fact, it actually explains it actually gives us a little bit more meat on the bone mm -hmm. as to why it's important to the characters. So I think that that's a great use here. Again, right. we're, we're going to spend most of this week with Lysander and we've got a lot to talk about here, of course, relating to him. But one of the big topics this week that we'll be talking about is going to be the mind's eye. Lysander here describes the mind's eye in some detail and tries to relate it to Calendora and in turn us the audience. What did you make of this description? I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting here. Based on this d description, it seemed like something that he could kind of tap into. Like it was a like it was an additional sense that was always there, but kind of had to focus on it in order for him to gain information from it. Like it was just kind of an inherent thing that was always around, but it turns out to be kind of that, but it's, it's also like, it has to be activated to a certain extent and toggled on and off. And, uh, he can only really use it in a, a really limited scope because it's draining and exhausting, but it, it felt more like based on this description, just kind of a meditative state or or something that was always around but needed needed focus if that makes sense yeah i think that totally makes sense and i think that it is it's good to be reminded of it and i feel like this book has done a very good job of kind of painting the picture of the mind's eye in a very wide lens so that you can you're kind of left questioning exactly what it is but we have an understanding and the seed is kind of planted and expanded upon and expanded upon. And I think here is really when we kind of start to finally dig into, you know, what it could be before we actually see its execution. Right. There, there's this ending of this peaceful moment between the two of them where they're quoting poetry back and forth to the point of where a sandstorm comes over, consumes the desert, races across the surface, chewing through a dozen sunbloods that are racing over top of the dunes. The greys that Lysander has tried to save and protect earlier from Cicero are eaten by the storm, all while Cicero, his golds, and Calendora make it to the bomber for safety and cover. Lysander turns around, realizing that he's not going to be able to make it, and hacks open the dangerous hydra nest to evade the storm inside of. Certainly a dangerous proposition from our boy. Not our boy, from Lysander. <laughs> was he our boy? He was our boy for a while there. We, we referred to our boys when he, Cassius was yeah, with him. Well, he's just him now, so he's our boy. Well, okay. Dude, I want I want the hydra. I want to see the Hydra so fucking badly. The fact that we got this close to a, some sort of violent encounter just tells me that there's going to be an encounter with the Hydra. Like, he's, he's built up too much sort of lore behind it and backstory behind it. Not really so much lore, but 
A little bit. The carving and and how the carvers are too ambitious and they're super dangerous and like we have a brush with it. It would it would feel super bad if we just never see him again. So we're going to fight a Hydra. I know it's going to happen. I want it. I want it right now. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to fight the Hydra in the dark. Yeah, I want. Well, I mean, I'm saying like I want to fight. I want to see the Hydra fight. I don't care where it is. I just want it now. Give me Gib Hydra. <laughs> Gib. Gib Hydra, please. <laughs> well, chapter 39, Lysander, the mind's eye, opens up after a precocious few hours with the Hydra. The storm finally passes, and Lysander is able to crawl out without being eaten by the ambitiously carved creature, as you stated. After surveying the landscape, he finds himself alone again, but makes his way to the bomber to see what he can uncover. He spends some time reflecting on something Pytha made mention of at the beginning of the story, that of the myth of war. What do you take of his dream of uniting gold and his change of tune here that happens in his internal monologue as he reflects on the myth? So, I mean, he's certainly been thrown headfirst into kind of the the worst of the worst when it comes to trying to find glory in the meaning of war. It kind of makes sense now that he's reflecting on on this myth of war from from Pytha. He mentions in the same section that um, worse than believing in the myth of war, he thought of himself as special. I'm guessing kind of the point where that went out the window was when Darrow cut his way through like him and everybody was basically gone before he hit the floor. He is mm-hmm. seeing the absolute brutality of Darrow and the war and how there's really not a whole lot of glory that goes along with it. He is going to become a casualty of or yeah he's going to become a casualty of war by getting sucked up by a sandstorm walking through the desert for a couple weeks like that's not a glorious battle but the end result's the same yeah the glory is almost seemingly more about like the stories that are told after the fact and that's where the glory of war lies but that's not the reality you know and we we know this of course from darrow and from lorne even back in the original trilogy we get this perspective of war from them that is very, very, very different than what poor baby Lysander thought it was going to be. Poor, you know? baby. poor baby. Poor baby. Poor baby, poor baby Lysando. Oh. <laughs> oh, did you did you get your face burned off, poor baby? Aw, mm. Reaper. Oh. Reaper did some damage. Aw. <laughs> All right, stop <laughs> belittling our boy. <laughs> You know, I I totally agree with you, though. I really enjoy the sort of reflection here on that myth of war. And I think that kind of like I I said a little bit ago, you know, we think of all of the historical Western legends like Britain and everything else. And I, I just can't help but think of how likely the combat was so much different than how a lot of those, you know, like even... Yeah, the tale of Beowulf is a myth, but let's say it's real just for just for the sake of of story Wait, here. It's not real. Um, it's obviously an exaggeration <laughs> of something that may or may not have been real. You know, like that's no, I, mean, I know that's kind of the point, and that I gets mean, to that kind of myth like... of war. No, I know. Well, yeah. Beowulf. Oh, you said Beowulf's Beowulf's not real. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't catch that. I'm. Mm-hmm. I am dumb. To just kind of put it, put the pin in the point. It really is about the way that the story is told, and you don't realize while you're going through war you realize that the myth is all fake that all the stories are not about the heroism and grandeur of which you held up your sword and everyone was inspired and jumped behind you and believed and blah 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 no no no. it's far far more brutal than that and just the way that he's kind of dissuaded of that opinion i think is excellent 
Mm-hmm. So as Lysander believes he's being driven mad by the desert by a mysterious voice, he notices the sound of grab boots, those of Seneca Cern, sent by Ajax to finish the job, ensure the seed of Loon dies in the desert. The mysterious voice continues demanding to know the secrets of the mind's eye, of course, namesake of the chapter. I think that it's just a lovely scene, especially when we know who's behind the voice in the end here. And I think that this is, like most of the Lysander chapters in this section, lends itself very brilliantly to screen. Yeah. So something I've been kind of curious about based on just all of these people coming up to him and basically saying that they want the secret of the mind's eye. Do they know what it is? Like, do they actually understand what it is? I don't think so. And I think that's a part of it, right? They just know that it was how Octavia managed to stay so many steps ahead of people or knew that it was something secret that the loons knew. And so that's why they were after it. But obviously not everyone knows. Like Seneca doesn't know. It doesn't appear like Ajax. Eh, Maybe Ajax made reference to it earlier. So I'll, I'll retract that comment. But it seems as though very few people know. Yeah. Like, it seems like they expect him to just tell them how to turn it on and that'll be that like (laughs) right (laughs) i don't think that's gonna be the case yeah like even if mr apollonius got his hands on this i don't know that it would be that useful to him i think he he'd have to like he'd have to use it to break his child that seems to be the only way to do it is as a child getting getting it broken into you inflicting you know trauma of a kind well i mean he's good at it so (laughs) them's the rules you know (laughs) them's the rules (laughs) apply more pressure until human break well when human break mind go picture everywhere mode in the in the case of some of his victims oh (laughs) hey got him got him i i enjoy how lysander turns kind of a corner here after his understanding earlier that we went through with the myth of war He's he's been playing the kind of political games and trying to play to the the parts of gold that he thinks that he can kind of manipulate. But I don't think he was really using it to his advantage so much as he was just reading the situation. But now now he's realizing that he has a whole hand of cards that he can really play out to manipulate these people, getting them to like roll down their helmets in front of them and expose themselves for a little bit of superiority they might earn by being the one who killed him, the son of Loon. I, I think that that's genius. Oh, how I know my people. That was such a good yeah. quote. That was so like he he played them like a fiddle. Yeah, I can't help but agree. The other one that I love is, of course, when his, his response to Seneca Stern as a human, I am entitled only to death and just kind of parroting Octavia back there, I think, is a, a great little little bit to show the the shit that's shaped him that's the perfect situation to break out that quote like i I can't think of a better situation to break that out because i mean it's obviously written to set it up and knock it down but it's a good quote seneca though is the name of a of a stoic philosopher isn't it yes the sort of idea of entitled only only to death does that come from seneca you know no more of a general stoic thing like if we look at well a okay there are two different senecas there's seneca the younger which is generally who most people think of he's the philosopher there's also seneca the elder who is a a big writer the horse dude horse dude Uh, like a centaur yeah he no he took care of horses oh um but fair point <laughs> but he he was a big dude because he lived through a bunch of different emperors of course and and was a senator and other things like that so he was a uh, senator and you decide to attribute him as horse dude 
Well, he specifically made a bunch of money off of horses, <laughs> so that's the important part here is that he was he was an equestrian or whatever it is when you okay. raise a lot of horses, which I think but is still equestrian. I feel like equestrian is horse rider. Hmm. I don't know. I am completely ignorant to that. But animal husbandry, is that part of this? Uh, that's when you marry I, horses, right? Um, no. <laughs> For the record, I am actually right. Equestrian is cor- correct. You you could say that he was an equestrian family or equites would be another term. Okay. So he was a senator that rode horses all the time. That's, that's the older. The younger is the one that we were talking about. Yeah, you know uh, what? That's big... the probably the one I'm talking about, Crossland. Thank you. <laughs> well, I know that it's the one that you were talking about, but I want to make sure that we were differentiating that there were multiple Senecas. And of course, like Seneca is not a completely unique name, but that's where. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but my point uh, still stands. Like the entitled only to death thing, that's not attributed specifically to Seneca. That's just more of a general Stoic thing. I don't even think that that's strictly Stoic. You know, like I, I was trying to see, like, did <sighs> did this come to fruition with Seneca as a reason because Seneca is the one that coined the term, something like that. Like I didn't know if Pierce was getting cheeky with it. Is mostly what I'm saying. Uh, okay, here's as close as we get. Now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, there there are a couple of different writings in the Tao of Seneca, which are the letters to Lucilius, that talk about a number of different subjects. And I just had to pull up the death ones here. So the one that's closest in reference is death is not an evil. What is it then? The one law making has that it is free of all discriminations, which uh, I mean, you can make that extrapolation. You, you're I think we're stretching a little bit to say that. Pierce didn't just write this himself, but right. I think that it's definitely a stoic thought, you know, regardless. I wouldn't say that it's a pull from Seneca necessarily. How poetic I, would that be, though, if Lysander it, kills Seneca in the book using a quote from Seneca outside? It kind of well. And again, like you said, it kind of feels like it's it's enough of a of a stretch there. But I actually preferred when we talked about this originally, I think we talked about Marcus Aurelius in conjunction with this quote which is uh, from meditations about death, whether it is a dispersion or resolution into atoms or annihilation, it is either extinction or change, which is, I, I think, more of a read on, you know, y- you're going to die like you're, you're going to be reduced to atoms. And, you know, that's just reality, which I think fit in with kind of the content at the time. But it is, you know, obviously, it's a big thing that the the four big primary stoics talk about often enough it's a it's kind of the core conceit is that you will die what are the yeah. what are the four main there's epictetus mm-hmm. marcus aurelius seneca and zeno citium gotcha there's your little random stoic rant for the episode <laughs> there we go <laughs> you brought out there will be more <clears throat> there, there will be many many more mm. so <laughs> As I was literally just talking about fear, Lysander goes into this speech as well about fear being the key to the mind's eye. Fear is a torrent, and after throwing a blinding flashing grenade, he slips into the mind's eye and sees in a very different way. It's almost like an overwhelming flash of his other senses whenever something adjusts or changes. And it reminds me of both the old and the new Daredevil on screen depictions where he's able to roughly make things out by piecing it all together before guiding himself, you know, around kind of the pit to execute the dudes. I think in particular, it reminds me more of the older Daredevil. You know, I think about the scene. I don't I don't know if you remember this that well. Daredevil, once again, being my favorite superhero. I remember this very clearly, but the scene in the rain where it's it's raining and he's staring at her and you see as she's moving and the rain's kind of following her. 
that's what reminds me of some of the changes that happen here where it doesn't matter until something changes or reacts like when when he's shooting the five test shots to see where it might hit and then he shoots the 30 shots after he finds the hit because he's able to mentally register where that is based on the senses i don't know what do you think of the mind's eye i think the daredevil comparison is how they would adapt it if they were to adapt this scene to film or tv or whatever they end up doing assuming they end up doing something but why wouldn't they but i don't think i agree with that based on the way it was described there's a mention here where uh, it's towards the end of the fight where he mentions that his his vision of it is several seconds outdated. So to me, that says that he just kind of gets a 3D, very accurate snapshot of the last thing he saw. And then he's able to intelligently extrapolate where where they would be. But vision wise, it's just where they started, if that makes sense. But then he uses his senses of like the pulse fist shots. He mentions hearing feedback from the armor. And then once he hears that takes all the 30 shots. So like that, that's completely based on hearing, not based on vision because he, it's too outdated. He can't, he doesn't know where they all are because they've been moving, but he knows where they were. And he can remember well where people died and what happened because there's the guy that checks the pulse of one of the guys, but he doesn't see that. So I don't know. I think they would probably try to condense it a little bit and make it a little bit more simple for film and make it something kind of like Daredevil. I'm not sure if that's actually an accurate representation of what it would actually look like. Another another example that I think of as well is um, Pitch Black. Do, Do you remember Pitch Black? No, not okay. familiar. It's a it's a Vin Diesel movie in which the main character is blind, but is a little bit extra sensory. And so he's able to kind of see it's it's closer. I think it's closer. I just I can't believe I didn't think about this earlier, but it feels mentally closer to Pitch Black than it does to Daredevil. Although okay. even those are kind of like similar, but not the same. But you're right. You're right. There there are those adjustments and it is kind of like he's taking up a mental snapshot of the area and then he's kind of like moving the snapshot as he moves through it as well. You know, mm-hmm. when he like adjusts, he has to take a new picture and kind of reread the surroundings and everything like that. I think it's I don't know. Right. It's it's definitely tough. It would be it would be a hard thing to adapt. I think in most mediums, to be honest, yeah. which is why I think they they would simplify it a little bit. It would almost be something that I think would work really well in the dark as opposed to in the light, you know, at like night and then have like the different flashes of weapons kind of show a guiding path. And, you know, following from Lysander's perspective as he's running around could be interesting. But what do you think of the mind's eye in general? Like, are you, you know, any any other thoughts, not necessarily the just the action, but of kind of the utility? It feels like there's more to it than what we've already seen. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it feels like this is a really great combat use of it. But there's obviously going to be more uses that are non combat because Octavia wasn't a fighter. Mm-hmm. And use this to her advantage all the time. And I'm excited to see how that ability translates to non-combat situations. And I'm not quite sure, sure how to apply that or what it would okay. look like. I, I really appreciate the cat and mouse game with Seneca. And I think that it's a beautiful one. One that I can imagine very easily, again, translated to screen. Just like the throwing of the rock, the stepping too close and getting stabbed in the in the knee. The splitting elbow injury from his hand all the way down to his elbow. Oh, between the radius and ulna. It just mm-hmm. big oof, big oof, big. 
<laughs> we also find out that he does, in fact, that Lysander does, in fact, know some of the Willow Way at the very least. It was kind of an interesting, cold, detached way that Lysander talks to Seneca throughout this section as well, including his Ask of a Poet at the end, referencing back to Kalindora and his exchange earlier as well. As far as the Willow Way stuff goes, I think it, it's entirely reasonable that he knows the Willow Way because of his grandfather and the amount of time he spent there, but also all the all the time he spent with Cassius, not necessarily for the Willow Way, just for razor wielding in general. But we never really saw that because he was never really that interested in it. He was always a lot more academic and a lot less fighting focused. So we, we never really saw him wield a razor up until now. I think. Is there any posi- any any time where we saw that? Where we saw Lysander wield a razor? Yeah. Yeah. On like the Vindabona, he was wielding a razor. I mean, um, I mean, actually, actually fighting someone like an actual combat one on one razor fight scene like we see with a lot of like we see with Darrow specifically. Like we we see him with a razor because he has one, but we don't we don't see his fighting style up until now, right? Yeah, at least nothing very distinct. You know, I I think that we do see stuff on the Vindabona, but it's also not razor on razor entirely. So right, I I don't see any reason why Lauren wouldn't have taught him. So that makes sense. And then I'm sure they had ten years. With Cass, like he and Cassius had 10 years together, I'm sure they did a bunch of razor training and just sparring and stuff all the time so that he gets to kind of hone those skills. His use of poetry, again, is super in line with his character and is a really cool um, come to fruition moment for, for all of his academic knowledge that didn't seem useful at all it's a it's a beautiful way to wrap up somebody's life (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah rip off his uh legs Mm -hmm. the what what was the name of that move the something noose the weeping noose so that's removing both ankles really removing both feet at once which is you know it would suck you could walk around on nubbins like that though yeah not I don't think you'd want Not to. Not great. I don't think you could. Actually, I don't think you could do it. I don't I don't think so at all, actually. <laughs> the one thing that I want to mention, of course, about the little poem here is that the poem he asks for is a Kipling poem. That Kipling poem is called To the True Romance. And Riyard Kipling was of a believer, especially as you kind of read through the poem, that romance is kind of the division of labor and discipline. And... That's it's kind of poetic for Lysander to be it's very poetic, I should say, for Lysander to be cutting him down after reciting this poem about the importance of not just being a workhorse, basically, and not just like listening to orders and instead considering what you're doing and who you're doing it to. Mm -hmm. Very, very well done, Lysander, you asshole. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But he's our asshole. He is our boyish asshole. No, mm-hmm. never don't mind. don't say uh, that. <laughs> uh oh! <laughs> I mean, again, I've had like two sips of this drink. What what's going on? Oh no, Crossland! Oh no! Oh no! We'll make it. All you right. just said the term boyish asshole. I know. I know. Badness. Mm. Ultra badness. Okay. <laughs> 
The encounter with Apollonius of Valirath, I think, is a rather telling one, one that declares that Lysander understands and kind of has internalized what he should be doing about the war and his kind of place in it. And it also adds to the pile of people of whom wish to know how to use the mind's eye. But even then, I think the most interesting part is he's still considering gold and thinking about gold in the end here. And even all of he's thinking out all of the possible political moves he can make between his kind of trio of different options. I think it's a fascinating little bit where he just he takes a second, he stops, he contemplates and decides based on what he thinks is best for gold. I think that's a little bit of a stretch, though, or at least not. That's not entirely what he's thinking of, because in this weighing of decisions and trying to figure out what to do next, he one of one of his arguments to himself is that he loves Atalantia or Atalantia as a family member. Which is, if he was trying to act solely out of what is best for gold, I feel like he would have purged any of those like emotional thoughts out of his out of his like decision making process. You know? Yeah. Well, again, he's still like a kid. Well, I mean, he's like a an adult, right? Like barely. He's a twenty year old. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's still some obvious thinking that's a little bit removed here, but I think that he's in general getting better at it. But I think that he's still. Ultimately, I mean, do you think that either of the other decisions are better for gold? I don't know. I don't think so. And then I think that's kind of his point is that yeah. like regardless, Adelante being kind of like a family member is a little bit better, even though she may also be trying to actively betray him, which is, you know, something he should maybe be considering. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe a little important. Maybe a tish important. A, a tish. I, I'll go with tish. tish. I'm cool with that. What do you what do you think about his trio of options? What do you make? Do you think that he's making the right choice? I mean, all told. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm really not sure. Like, what I, choice I, did you make? I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I think I'd probably go with Apple. Teach him. <laughs> Why is that? Because he's a fun dude. <laughs> oh, man. And, and yeah. it, it also guarantees Lysander's like, escape from the desert. Yeah, that's fair. But no, I, I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Is it? Well, I mean, like. That seems like a very I'm... not interesting answer to that question. I'm I'm pretty sure well it's it's interesting in the fact that like I know my answer and what would yours be uh give up and die in the desert you idiot you're fighting for the wrong cause you fool <laughs> but those those two don't have kidding. to be the same <laughs> true I see your point I see your point <laughs> no I think that I think that ultimately he is in a tough situation and knowing Lysander, wouldn't the move to be to pit these people against each other? Like, wouldn't that be, like, what he should be thinking right no, now? That, that seems like a Darrow move. Well, maybe he should be thinking more like Darrow. He should, but he's not going to. And I guess uh, another point here, too, is that Lysander and Apollonius's motivations are kind of a little bit opposed, wherein Lysander really wants to get get to Darrow because he believes that he's the core of the problem. And Apollonius is kind of, he's like, yeah, we'll get there eventually. And he's like... Lysander's kind of like, no, 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 we can't get there eventually. We have to do this soon. I don't I don't know if that's the read I had on it. It was more like we need we need Darrow to be doing what he's doing because he's taking the attention off of our other targets. Are you saying this from, from Lysander's perspective? From Apollonius' perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to just kind of like, oh, he's kind of in the background. We'll get there when we get there. It was it's more like we need him to be doing this. And we'll we'll take care of it later because he's doing something for us effectively. Yeah, he is being useful in this way. That's true mm -hmm. and fair and valid. That's what they say about me. True, fair, and true, valid. fair, invalid. In the end, 
<laughs> he trudges forward through the desert, blind but able to see. Uh, he is alive and has earned his life himself and will not waste this chance. Why would you say it like that? Blind but able to see. Well, I like blind but no longer blinded is like a, just it. This is w- one of the few lines in all of and bless bless Pierce Brown. The dude has given us so many like perfect everythings. And I'm like, mm, this is like so on the nose. It's too. But, it's it's low hanging fruit, man. Yeah. Like, I that's why I said blind but able to see is because like I think that's the only thing that's like lower hanging fruit. Lysander is but, also somebody who I th- would kind of expect to use. Yeah, that's exactly what I was like, thinking. That kind of phrase. So I'm okay yeah. with it. He's like he's like a 20 year old tweeting something that he thinks is think is pro, thinks is thinks is profound. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> he is uh, he is Red Rising's Jaden Smith. Yes, exactly. Or like <laughs> Justin Bieber. Something like that. Chapter 40. Ephraim. Kajradakin? 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 Kyrdakan is how the audiobook says it. Okay. That makes enough sense. So, Ephraim Kyrdakin. Kyrdakan. <laughs> Kyrdakan. Um, I, I meant to say it like you did, but I just said it like I did. Um, <laughs> you said it correct instead. <laughs> Kier, so, they, they, KJR um is it's used like or, yeah it, but it's used in other parts of this as like in a prefix for different words correct um, and I, I think cure makes the most sense mm-hmm. like the cure like the cure this is like disintegration this is where we learn that robert smith is actually all of the obsidians he's been valdir the whole time <laughs> <laughs> With that, as we open up the chapter, Ephraim is having a tough time with his thoughts about being complicit to what's about to happen. The genocide, the war, the rebellion that he's about to support through the use of the Skuggy by Valdir. What'd you make of the whole thing? I mean, if there was ever a time for this man to have some Zolodone, I feel like this is it. He's in a tough spot. Maybe maybe to a certain extent it's important for him to actually see the atrocities that he himself calls the, that he calls himself complicit in. Yeah. I don't know if it counts as character growth, but it's kind of on the path to it. I'd say so. Yeah. It feels kind of like a, a moment of, of growth here. Yeah. Or, or what could become growth. It's recognizing his complacency in, um, in atrocities. And he is admitting that he has a problem. I don't know if he's ever referred to himself as not an addict of Zolodome. I think he I think he understood entirely that he was addicted to it, but he's never been in a position where he hasn't had access to it. He knew he was addicted to it, but he was addicted for a good reason and uh, actively sought out that lack of feeling. I don't know. It's a little different, but it's basically the same as being an addict. Yeah. There's a lot to say here about drugs in this section. So I think that there's we're definitely going to circle around to this drain a couple of times as we kind of like think through his sort of I don't know handling, I think especially of his forced sobriety. <laughs> it really is. Um, I mean, that's effectively yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's. I I think that he, as he's kind of like itching and still reaching for it, I think that he would still kind of choose the Zolodone because it's a, it's an intentionally numbing thing. At the very least, the the Ephraim that we know right now, like you said, 
So mm-hmm. I didn't mean to fully reiterate what you said, but no. I feel like it did. Good. What do you take from Ephraim and Pax's conversation about Sefi liberating Samaria? Who do you side more with, if anyone? I think I agree with Ephraim more than Pax. Pax mentions that the obsidian would need to trade the helium for it to have any worth. That's not entirely mm-hmm. true, though, because that helium can effectively act as a hostage, right? Yeah. Like that, that is intrinsic worth. Like they, they don't have to establish any sort of trading in order for it to become valuable to them. Their value in it is just holding it and the Republic or the society or whoever not having it like that. That's the value. Well, okay. Yes. I, the only thing that I would also give that is that eventually the only reason that it will, I, I think what you're leading to is an increase in pl- price because of a decrease of supply. So ultimately they're just, they get to name their price is kind of what, what you, with what you're saying, that's what that implies. Um, Not necessarily. I guess, I guess kind of, it could boil down that way. I was more saying you're getting, th- this is one of the biggest sources. Yep. Comply with us and meet our demands. And you can have access to it again. But until then, we're not giving you anything. And that'll internally increase prices because they don't have access to to the supply anymore or to that supply. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yes. Effectively, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I I think that I see this mostly influencing price because eventually either just holding just holding on to it would either lead to war like people attacking them and fighting for it or an increase in price like that and which is a better position to be in and I, th- I think that an open trade relation is going to be a better one and i think you know given what we know from what mustang said before she died she was open to them having their own plot of land and understood that that was sort of the way that things were going to happen so i guess my point was is that like either the obsidians now control pricing and they can drive price up or people attack the obsidians to reclaim the land which paints them in a bad light Right. Mm, right. And that was kind of, I think, to some degree, Pax's point. Like the goal is, is to not kill everyone that way. You know, they the obsidians themselves aren't painted in a bad light. And then if the the society or the Republic had to go back and take it, then that would be it'd paint them negatively. OK. Especially the Republic. Yeah. OK. So maybe I do agree. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's I mean, I think that they both have good points, which I think is why it makes for a good conversation. One that kind of also ends without perfect resolution Mm -hmm. i think i agree with your core point though that like it is it is a hostage no matter which way you look at it and sometimes hostages are freed with force and other times they're purchased with bribes and sometimes they're killed sometimes they are killed by the people (laughs) holding them (laughs) fair point pj (laughs) didn't think about that one Pax and Ephraim right after this have like a really great heart to heart about their upbringing over a pair of burners, which is funny because the 11 year old smoking and Ephraim makes the little comment about, well, like cancer is not going to not going to get you. We eliminated that. And he's like, oh, yeah, fair point. But they talk at length about their fathers, mostly about Darrow. But Ephraim has a little speech about kind of one of the important foundational quotes that he heard kind of made him stories. But Pax says in particular something that I think is really important as we reflect back on our Dara Reaper want to be a father, doesn't want to be a father conversation from, you know, lending his perspective. He says, I don't hate him. I mean, I do, but I don't. If that makes sense. I hate him for leaving for Venus, but not for Mercury. At his best, he's how men should be. So maybe that means it's the world that's flawed. So what do you take from Ephraim and Pax's conversation surrounding their respective upbringing and reflecting on Darrow? So I was I was 
trying to find the passage that uh, mentions Ephraim's dad when I was like looking through this. I couldn't find it. I know it's like one sentence or something. Yeah, it's like he got a 10K bonus for splooging. Yeah, something like that. But I I felt like Pax broke down Darrow really, really well. Less emotional than you would expect a kid to be. Like there there was a little bit there, but um, it was more of a scholarly breakdown of a man as opposed to a kid talking about his dad. There are obviously feelings and there's there's thoughts and understanding, but not it, it it's not not a whole lot of feeling to it. It's kind of sad, but it's the cost of Darrow spending most of his life or most of Pax's life on the battlefield instead of raising him. Pax understands who he is and Pax understands why he is like he is, but that means that Pax doesn't know Darrow as a father so much. Yeah. I and I think that, you know, to to the point, I, I like the little differentiation that he makes here. You know, I hate him for leaving for Venus, but not for Mercury. And I think that that's actually shockingly important in terms of his reflection. Like he he did not think that the Venus leave was a good idea, that escaping his mother, that killing Wolfgar, that all of that was good or the right decision. Darrow also, for the record, in post, does not think that that was the right decision, right. as we find out at the end of Iron Gold. I think that it's still an important reflection that this 11-year-old understands. And the line as well that's just very important is, at his best, he's how men should be. So maybe that means that it's the world that's flawed. And man, is that certain man? Is that true? (laughs) Like Darrow would be a damn good father if he didn't have all this other shit to do. But the reality is, is that he has all this other shit to do. Right. We love you, Pax, even if your dad doesn't show up to your soccer games. Do you think he played soccer? Pax? No. Pax like kills people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't like fight hard, but he kills people. It's like a 10 year old. Interesting dichotomy. 10 year old murderer. So Osgard shows up and interrupts the conversation, of course, and extends Sefi's invitation to Kyrdokan? Kyrdokan? Kyrdokan. Kyrdokan? Kyrdokan. Of which Pax definitely needs to explain to the Cranier, who knows nothing about such things. The ritual starts and goes off and is just a fucking wild sequence that I don't even know where to begin to explain. Like, I don't, I don't know how to pick this shit apart. It's incredible and hilarious and awful as kind of Ephraim reads through the whole situation. What did you think of it? With all of this going on and all of the, just kind of this horror show of an animal getting brutalized and like cleaved in two almost, and then burned. Is there any way he's actually thinking clearly? He's obviously not calm given his, reaction later on with the offerings but like there's no way he's in a good state of mind right now i mean no yeah that's kind of where i'm like at with him in this moment like what is going through his head because it can't be good in any sort of way man i think the other part of this i mean before even the torque coins get thrown in right is that like as pax is explaining this he's only the second person to ever be invited to one of these that isn't an obsidian I guess technically uh, Pax too, because Pax is there, right? No, I think Osgard is translating it all. Oh, yeah. Yep, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, crazy honor. Super cool. Fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd be able to keep it together at that point. I'd be all yeah. over the place. Right. I think especially when it comes to the wagers and they start to throw in those coins, the torque coins, Ephraim absolutely goes off at their audacity to call his plan a farce and just kind of insult him at this time. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, like you get Valdir's point of like, this is what's worked before. Why would we do this? 
But I, I love Ephraim's like little monologue that he gives here is I stole those gold spawn twice. You scraped us up like vultures and you call me a parasite. I was a son of Ares while you were still in the Dark Age, shitheads. I hunted peerless while you were still serving them or pulling your people off of the poles. But you call me a dog. Fair enough. I spit on my honor. I don't give a damn. But don't you ever, ever insult my work. A, great, great for Ephraim. Like, I love that, like, he's even shitting on, like, his own, like, perceived worth. He's like, I don't care. I, I don't give a shit what you think I'm worth. But if you insult what I do, then I care. Because I am very good at what I do. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a pretty immediate just washing over him of fear and regret after he... So, so from there, he uh, he goes through with what Pax told him not to do. And gives like the highest tier offering of blood, which basically means he'll get ritualist, ritualistically sacrificed if they lose, right? Yep. Yeah. So like, there, there's he wasn't even thinking about it. He was so fucking pissed that he gives that little speech and bleeds into the torso or into the rib cage, and just reading, reading through that sort of fear and regret that washes over him afterwards was super satisfying and terrifying for him. There's got to be some relief in his eyes that Sefi, and I think they talk about it a little bit that Sefi gives the same offering. So they're, they're kind of in it together and he knows that she believes in in him. So, um, but he also knows that if, if they fuck up, both of them are dead. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that part of the story. Of course, I, I really enjoy the sort of anxiety that he has over approaching this this new situation entirely fresh and kind of working his way through all of, you know, the scenarios. And then he gets he gets really anxious and he gets pissed off and he throws the blood in. But then I really, really appreciate Sefi's f- match here and just like a kind of to like say, how dare you doubt me and my work, but then also to say like I believe in you to him, I think is, is great, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's kind of a rare, rare obsidian expression of, of faith. Actually, I say rare. It's, it's not, it's earned and earned because we got, we got the same thing with Dara and Ragnar. We had a similar thing with Dara and Ragnar, and we've got a similar kind of thing with Volga and kind of the way that she's protective of, of Ephraim because of, you know, what he's done, what he's worth and how he's lifted her up. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more of a stepping up for people that are, you know, worthy in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Ephraim. Very worthy. Worthy dude. Yeah, totally. With that, chapter 41, Ephraim, Obsidian Rising. Oh, man. I can't (laughs) tell you in, like, structuring the show how hard I got, how hard I tried (laughs) to end a week at this chapter. Because it's so good. It is pretty fucking good. It's such a good chapter. And it just wasn't working no matter how I sliced it and diced it in order to hit the other moments. And I was like, oh, God, that like put us back an extra week and we'd have like a weird like hour long episode in there. And I was like, ah, it's just not going to work. So sadly, like this this chapter, we're still going to give it all the attention it deserves. We just don't get to end on it necessarily. But uh, fucking what a chapter. Mm-hmm. So Ephraim, of course, is just a perfect source of humor for me inside of the rest of this story <laughs> so far. You know, the intro, everything throughout this chapter is just fucking brilliant and talking about like the the blue pilot that they have piloting the ship uh is focusing really hard even though a mentally disenfranchised elephant could fly this tub <laughs> like just the snark yep so we kind of need these like humor breaks though in this book but 
yeah, it, it's certainly a fountain, a fountain of humor from him in this chapter. So I'm, I'm absolutely happy to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on that. And he just like kind of gets to be himself and it only gets worse and more interesting. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, we, we've talked about Ephraim's addiction to Zolodone and other substances for you know weeks now. It's really kind of been a focus since the end of Iron Gold between, you know, at the very beginning of this chapter, he says something like the olive on top, you know, being a clear martini reference as opposed to the cherry on top. Uh, him seeking out other braves who are drug users trying to get stuff from them the berserkers <laughs> he's, he's looking for any way that he can get a quick hit before he goes into combat and well then he eats some of osgard's mysterious walnuts that are actually spirit berries and is going to have a real fun time uh-oh uh-oh <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just find it Osgard's reaction, initial reaction, hilarious. And he's like, well, you're screwed. So, like, I can't undo what you've done outside of, like, get angry at you. Am um, I going to die? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? What was that actual quote? Will I die? He shrugs. We will see. <laughs> oh, man. And like the beginning of this, you know, I, I had I've had a conversation inside of the no PJ zone. People have been looking forward to you reading this little section. But on our patron discord, as mentioned previously, we've been having conversations about like this chapter just because of how fun it is and whatnot. And um, one of the patrons described this as very close to, uh, I think, their sister's psychedelic trip, something like that. Regardless, the wall turning to pulsing jelly as he leads them through them like a drunk puppy, like just being a perfect example of of sort of that that psychedelic trip, which is hilarious. Osgard being a demon, the rifle of horrible power, <laughs> the way he feels the Hyargla La Ragnar as it's being chanted is just all of it is fucking amazing yeah um so it's good to hear that we have a first-hand account of somebody saying that they have heard of a similar trip because i don't know a whole lot about hallucinogenics believe it or not so i didn't know if this was like an accurate description of what it would be like to uh sort of overdose on hallucinogenics but mm -hmm. uh, it definitely seems like it's it's rooted in some sort of reality so it seems really well thought out but I wasn't sure if it was like, oh, if you haven't done if you haven't done anything like this, it seems like it'd be a great description. But if you have, then it's completely like over the top. But I wasn't sure. So to have a yeah. first hand account, well, second hand account, I guess, makes that a little bit more believable. So I'm ha I'm happy for that. But either way, really, really cool read. Really immersive. You love drugs. You love drugs. Stay on top of the high. Like there's just so many <laughs> different moments in this. <laughs> we yeah. enter the mouth of a beast like oh my gosh all of it mm -hmm. and in some of the metaphors that pierce uses throughout here are great um one of my favorites is the um no just an empty hanger empty of helium and crates and filled with warriors they vibrate like dark teeth and there's just all of these like tiny things the goddess with a luminous headdress white feathers and and Osgard's like Sefi. He goes like, looks fantastic. Like just is so excited about it. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's brilliant. It's yeah. so well, absolutely. well executed. Absolutely. Um, just absolute, absolutely fun. And of course the attack seems to be going off with success as Ephraim reflects, just like you did on the inevitability 
of this kind of whole thing. The Obsidian Rising, of course, eventually going to be taking place. Something that you'd really kind of been thinking about since Morningstar even. And Mm -hmm. here we are literally resubmerging ourselves into, you know, a title that's meant to harken back to that very first book of the series in a way. And that's what you said this book was going to be about. And you kind of kind of did at least a little bit yeah, a little bit but yeah. i mean it, it makes entire fucking sense like obsidians are not only the strongest but they've also been isolated the most of all the colors and i mean there there's a close second with the reds being underground and like isolated from the upper society but they still had interaction with like the grays and the coppers and once in a while golds would come down for like mm-hmm. passing judgment for like hangings and stuff. But for the most part, the obsidians were completely isolated. So in that isolation, they were able to create this kinship and this lore and just the, these legends. And they forged a completely separate society for lack of a better term mm-hmm. that they, they are self-sustaining. What benefits would there be to try to merge their culture with the others when it's entirely built upon them being alone so i i I think from that aspect it makes total sense that they'd kind of split off on their own again Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it kind of seems inevitable and like they were playing with fire in a large way and that this really was like you said inevitable in every context especially because they are so isolated compared to so many of the other colors in that sort of thought process there's not a whole lot of situations where they don't seem used by the Republic. Like mm-hmm. That might not be the intention, but bringing the Obsidians into the fold benefits the rest of the Republic more than it benefits the Obsidian. They've been separate and fine for hundreds mm-hmm. of years. They, they've totally functioned on their own with like minimal gold interference. And so, of course, they want this independence that they feel like they've mostly earned outside of the sacrifices to the gods. You know, they've been running on their own for so long. Right. Totally. This chapter is obviously incredible. His dive, his overconfident dive through the air. Osgard apparently telling him to go, but actually telling him to stay, of course, and like not jump, you idiot, like you're not wearing fucking pants. And him just like landing on the ground. The chapter ends with a plop. And I've got to read it because it's just so good. Every fucking time it kills me. They turn their glowing evil red eyes towards me and I laugh when they do not fire for I am a spirit warrior and I point my rifle at them, pull the trigger and shit down my leg because I'm alone amongst a pack of hunter killer robots and it is no rifle in my hand. It is only a mop. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of curious if F survives this because that's all we hear. Like that is the end of what we know of Ephraim at this point. Mm -hmm. We don't even know if he hits the ground I'm assuming he does because he's a human fucking being. But yeah, we we know nothing more. And mm-hmm. that's a great way to to leave Ephraim right now. There there was like a little thing that I shared that I was kind of worried about, like the smallest of spoilers that are ever possible here. Uh, but Sushi did some artwork of some uh, chibi characters, you know, chibi style characters of uh, from Red Rising and had like this whole plaster of a bunch of them up. And one of them was the Ephraim but he was holding a mop like everyone else is like holding razors or holding other things or hands at their side. But Ephraim's holding a mop and it's it's just so perfect because the seat is 
glorious. But yeah, you raise a good point on his his yeah. chance of survival. But I was afraid that I was going to kill the joke at some point. Like you're going to ask about the mob because you saw it on oh, like Instagram or something like that. Didn't, I was like, didn't cross my mind. <laughs> there also wasn't like uh, attributions for who everyone was. So like I remember that. I remember that. And there was a guy with a mop. Mm-hmm. Didn't think that was Ephraim. Fair. Fair point. I had no idea who it was. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly. Yeah. Good point. Good mm-hmm. point. With that, we move into part three, treason. So the quote at the beginning of the section, during war, the laws are silent. This is, re- I think it's really interesting. It's pretty simple, pretty fucking straightforward. Like what, what else do you talk about here? The laws, the laws are silent because it's war, which we've also kind of had said to us in this, in the previous part of part two, right? Like who's going to enforce the laws? The winners are among some other different quotes that have been thrown around about the legality of warfare and the morality of warfare that kind of Lysander's either debated or Darrow has with Harnassus. So yeah, seems pretty straightforward. Chapter 42, Lysander, a chorus upon the pale. I really enjoy this chapter for Lysander as I believe we've really kind of started to see him change and grow in certain ways over the course of even just like this chunk has been particularly filled with growth. Obviously, the beginning of the book as well with sort of the brutality that ending the death of Serafina and whatnot. feels like he's becoming more of himself one way or another, whichever way you look at it, as he faces down his kind of own 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. I mean, it's only like seven, but, you know, it's like yeah. still bad. Well, still not fun. There is a lot of growth for him, though, through all of this. Not only in this section, these situations are allowing him to grow in really, really incredible ways, even though it's out of absolute necessity. Like They're, they're forcing him to grow, and he, he's becoming a lot more or a lot less theoretical in his thoughts. His thoughts are a lot more rooted in what's happened to him as opposed to what he thinks the world's about. That's very true. Like everything is becoming an application as opposed to, you know, an extrapolation or a thought. Right. In Mm -hmm. many ways, Darrow is a man of action and Lysander is a man of, of words, of study, you know, belongs in a library in many ways. But Lysander is finally kind of realizing through action and through reality, like you said what he needs to be right even more so he gains another reflection one that i think helps us discuss with his kind of shifting thoughts of gold with an even kind of finer point to it the peerless scar was formalized by selenius to mark a gold worthy of respect not worship our rigorous institutes were built to educate us to be shepherds not cannibals the world provided darrow to show us how far we lost our way to fight him. We did not find our path again. We strayed further and further learning all of the wrong lessons. So this is an incredible bit of insight about Darrow and the society remnants reaction to him. It's kind of the universal nature of power. They don't really worry about the implications of creeping up on more power, but in the opposite situation, they will fight tooth and nail to maintain it. They will not relinquish any power. They will only slowly gain more and mm-hmm. rationalize. This is fine. This is necessary in order to keep the society going. Yeah, in many ways, like power compounds, right? So like there's this sort of doubling down nature that we find the society in and they're like, okay, well, we'll just go even further. We'll just we'll take our, our steps even further and start to strip away more and do more violent things because, well, we have to in order to maintain we had you Mm -hmm. know 
And once you kind of start to cross those lines, it's very hard to uncross them in a lot of ways. Right. I think that's kind of Lysander's, you know, point to some degree. This makes me really, really curious about Pierce Brown's personal, like, political beliefs. Like, where where does he fall? Well, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know either, but I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that I think that if we think through the entire series, I mean, he's definitely liberal, right? Like, he's undoubtedly against sort of occupation and other components like that. But he's clearly well thought out and well, you know, that's that's too fine a point, right? I think that a lot of times when we try to put labels on people, that's not a good way of addressing someone's political philosophy. So no, yeah, I, no, I, I and, don't and think there's also abstracting the the art from the artist and all of that. But he does a good job of pointing out the flaws in basically every single like version of government there is. You know, he, yeah, there aren't there aren't many ways to uh, point towards the positives in authoritarianism. But he kind of does that at, at, to a certain extent. He he points out like the benefits that it has, even though it's mostly highlighting the the negatives, but also like he, he highlights the positives in democracy, like a, a pure or as a representative democracy or as pure of a democracy as there exists in the modern world. And highlights those flaws as well. Like there, there's, there's no good answer <laughs> to, to pretty much any way of leading people because everything is is ripe for corruption he d- he does a great job of kind of understanding and highlighting the positives and, and and negatives and the reasons for and against every everything that comes across in this book this is really really well done really cool i think one of the great things too is that he can can do all of these things and explore all these different thoughts through these different characters very well through lysander he can present you know one viewpoint and that just because he's presenting the viewpoint, this is a thing that often goes remarked in kind of uh, book culture at large to some degree. But there are a number of people that will criticize an author because they have a character, probably a bad one, who has a bad point of view or is like, you know, brings up something like authoritarianism and brings it up in a positive light. Right. Because mm-hmm. but that's that's his point of view. He's a he's a bad person. We can objectively say that like Lysander's goals aren't correct compared to darrow's goals he is better than most other golds you know in in many respects but he's not that's not a better system right just because he supports something that's bad doesn't mean that pierce brown is automatically saying go support bad thing right right which is what some people ascribe to a number of different authors i believe john Gwynn was getting some shit for this for a character that he wrote and then he had to write a blog about like you understand that like writing an evil person means that we have to show that they're evil right like that's a duh i think that lysander gets like a lot of flack in a way because of similar similar thoughts but at least it's lysander and not pierce because like we have enough understanding of nuance to get that right Mm -hmm. folks right Write the best fandom ever. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, man. Yeah, that's so, totally fair. I really appreciate the farm that we get kind of in the middle here. It's a nice place for him to recover, one that gives him a break. And I think that maybe it's some of my fascination with Arthurian legends after rereading The Green Knight in preparation for seeing The Green Knight or thinking about The Dark Tower and, and that and The Lord of the Rings this week. I also did a giant kind of reflection with a younger um, cousin of mine on the Chronicles of Narnia and sort of the way that the books are spaced out and how that works. But the rest inside of a journey is actually such 
an important component to the series to to book series it's a moment where the hero gets a second to consider you know i guess the protagonist is probably better in lysander's case he's not necessarily a hero but our boy gets a second to consider dropping the quest and then really gets to kind of re-engage with his beliefs of do i believe in these things is this what i want and then setting out on the quest again I don't know. The whole thing feels eerily similar. It feels very important and feels like there are a lot of different examples in literature out there. So you you touched on it a little bit with the Lord of the Rings last week at the end of the episode. We we started a new segment, the question of the week, tangentially related to the book, but focusing on really any sort of literature. And the, the question was your favorite speech in any sort of media. And what I chose, and we'll get to it at the end, but it's the speech from Sam, basically talking about heroes and stories and people who don't complete their story and why we don't hear about them because it's not an interesting story, essentially. And we'll, like I said, we'll get to it later, but um, I hadn't even made that comparison or that connection that this was, uh, this was a point where this story could have ended <laughs> He could have absolutely just hole up here and like not gone forward, but instead it was just kind of a pit stop. I haven't seen mm-hmm. the Green Knight that you were mentioning. I haven't heard of it actually, so oh, I haven't really? read it. Okay, no. I, what what is it? So the Green Knight is an Arthurian legend. So it is old. Uh, it's called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm sure you've heard of Sir Gawain, right? Nope. At the very least, you know Gawain from Knights of the Round Table. So, because he's oh, a knight. Okay. Gotcha. You know, like you know him from Monty Python. It basically, to give kind of concept to the story, the myth of Sir Gawain is one of the nephew of King Arthur, and he hasn't yet kind of earned his knighthood. And so he is given an, he's presented with an opportunity to earn, to like create a story basically to finally like be mythical and, and go on kind of his, his own hero's journey and what that kind of looks like for him, given that he's kind of got some cowardly traits or some, you know, undesirable traits for a knight. And it's very interesting. That's more of the movie plot. If that makes sense. The original story plot is very similarly hewn, but the difference is sort of the lengths of which the movie goes to explore some minor myths that were kind of not really fully fleshed out. And so that's kind of part of the part of the fun of the movie is seeing some of these like side adventures that clearly happened inside of the tale be kind of fully fleshed out. So okay. it's a, it, it was great. I went and watched it in theaters alone, like as a break, like eight days ago, nine days ago, something like that. As um, an aside, it's just a treat. Isn't it? awesome to go see a movie just alone at a yeah, theater. Yeah, I love going in the movie theater alone. I love it. I don't do yeah. it often. I I love that experience. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. But really, really good movie. Deb Patel plays the lead. It is kind of an arty movie in a way, if that makes sense. It's meant to be introspective and kind of reflective. So we're not looking for like my straight up honest review of the movie here. But if I were to say my just like no spoiler review within the first 15 minutes i almost walked out and i was and it wasn't because the movie wasn't good it's because i was actually like falling asleep which was weird because that never happens to me but then almost immediately after that point i got like hooked into the rest of the story and i was like on the edge of my seat and was having a great time so awesome it's not not an action movie for sure folks if you're sold on that it's not it's closer to like uh i don't know it's a fairy tale it's awesome great yeah Yeah. maybe uh i'll see when that's showing around here 
go see it. Yeah, I think it also just came available for rent, but obviously movie theater better experience. Faux show. It's definitely one of those that you don't want to pick up your phone in the middle of because you'll be like not confused, but you'll miss something and you'll be like, oh, shit. Uh, Better to see in a theater for that reason. Mm -hmm. So with that, we'll move on from kind of the the farmhouse question but it's it's an interesting one to ponder one that maybe we'll talk about later Mm -hmm. so lysander finally arrives at erebos escaping the ladon and finds it a watery necropolis one drowned by the storm gods that orion piloted and darrow launched lysander explores the city and finds himself among a forest of 400 corpses impaled by the fear knight and with an inscription that reads very similar to that of ozymandias by Shelley that we were talking about earlier it's worthy of mentioning of course that the original poem is really a reflection on the impermanence of empire and man and the way that we are all ultimately eaten by time while this is seemingly meant to be instead an upholding of the society remnants values and a comeuppance for those who would rise against the empire isn't that such a gold thing to do though oh totally like, like it is just taking historical like passages and twisting them just enough to make it say what you're what you're trying to push no this mm-hmm. is this is history this is what it's supposed to be ah not reading that right yeah and i mean i feel like they're knowingly twisting it of course because they're saying you know the martians and everything else and they're they're clearly twisting it but they're you know in turn like you're saying twisting kind of the message or utilizing the original message to to really kind of pound it home to drive it home into us so Mm -hmm. yeah could not agree more i i think that it's it's just a brilliant reflection on golds as a whole and also a good way of tying in another inside of the same episode reference to Shelley, Percy Shelley. Yep. His middle name is Beesh. Beesh. Which is what I call you sometimes. Sup, Beesh. Sup, Beesh. <laughs> anyway, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's great. But you're totally right. It's totally a reflection. Oh, boy. And what a scene it really is, of course. Lysander understands and hears that some of these folks are still breathing and they're begging for mercy much to his own personal lot you know he and he goes through and puts puts a couple of these folks down kind of giving them that mercy of of the quick death to end it and this is heartbreaking in like three different ways Mm -hmm. because lysander recognizes that this is the cruelty of atlas run amok and kind of finally having an understanding of why and what octavia used him for and why he was this specific tool kind of hewn and a hostage even from the rim, of course, even though he's treated very nicely. You know, just there's a lot, a lot here, a lot of pain here. But then when he gets to one of the Reds, one of the Reds is laughing as he steps on a mine. Lysander almost works himself out of the mine, but then gets caught by the tack net. He, you know, he is captured, blasted from his feet. Gorgons kick him, knock him out after they discover his razor, and uh, we know that they're Gorgons. Yeah, yeah. Baby faces. We we know that much. I didn't know how to feel when the Impaled Reds were mocking him, though. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really didn't know how to feel because we have this luxury of knowing Lysander's intentions and how pure they are. Like, he, he is genuinely trying to do what he thinks is best and what he thinks is right and not trying to harm anyone he is trying to let these people go he's trying to not not let them go but but end their suffering and it it is it's entirely pure in that sense but we also know that all of these reds have only experienced horrible horrible things from the golds so i can't blame them for 
mocking the gold that gets caught in the trap, you know? Like there's there's a little bit of reverie there in Lysander's pain, and I can't fault him for it. So like it's this situation where I completely I, I can't fault either side at all. And there I feel like there are really few situations like that that are truly just a conundrum to me on like, is there anyone in the right here? Or and, is there is there anyone of, in the wrong here? Part of like adding into that conundrum even more is when he's walking through Erebos. And all the different reds are reflecting and being like, well, Dominus, like they they drowned us. They they killed so many of us. And like we're trying to survive our best. And like they're talking about the the farm and how no one showed up to get the stuff. And so all the food's rotting because they're kind of left helpless again without kind of the uh, a like the masters to guide them because a they're not like used to it. But I, I it just also places this sort of weird different kind of suffering where you're like god i don't know how how to feel about this because you understand that like some of these people need a purpose but it's also the only way that they survive and then on top of that you throw in this later situation where you're like jesus christ i don't know whether i should be i should be sympathizing i think with the red that's impaled but because he's impaled like that's bad <laughs> but like, ugh, yeah fuck just ridiculous it's all nuts brain hurdy brain hurdy indeed it is not a great one with that we move into our last chapter of the week it's going to be a real quick one chapter 43 lysander the enemy so lysander travels back across the desert on the back of the gorgon bike to a cave much to his chagrin (laughs) to a cave where other howlers are being trapped and interrogated by the fear knight there are a couple of course that are in there Hadrian, Ignatius, Drusilla, Crastus, and Alexander, his long estranged cousins, the Arcosian Knights. Lysander, of course, hides his identity behind that of the name of Cato Al Vitruvius, a seemingly innocuous name, but one that he would be able to defend. What did you make of this whole kind of transition here and reveal that Alex and the Arcosians are alive? Well, first, aw shit, Alex is alive. Of course, though. Like, why wouldn't he be? <laughs> uh, this is, though, a, a really cool scene for Lysander. He he gets questioned of, of his backstory that he gives, and he had very specifically chosen this name. He had this <clears throat> planned out from the start, and it all paid off when they questioned him, and it was really kind of cool to see that come to fruition almost immediately. I am curious, though, how Alexander would actually react if Lysander would have been completely open, would they would they get along? Would he like work with him at all? I don't know. Man, isn't that an interesting question to ponder? I think I think that'd be tough. I feel like the five of them might feel like strangling him, you know, just because what a tool the loon might be to the society. But at the same time, isn't he more useful as a hostage then? He could be more useful. That's exactly where my brain was like. He either could be more useful as a hostage. I mean, and they haven't even talked, right? So they have no idea about anything that Lysander thinks. So perhaps he could be more of an ally and an asset Mm -hmm. than, you know, something. So that's a a great question. Alex has to know that he's been kind of gone as a ward of Cassius for the last decade, right? Like you would think Dara would have talked to him about that. Yep, they definitely, definitely knows. Yeah, there's there's no way. I think it, I think that's even referenced in Iron Gold, pretty sure. Okay. So, final kind of thing of the week, he tells them the story of Erebos, accounting for all the various wounds and evading Drusilla's trick questions, and meanwhile informing 
Alexander of Darrow's six or rather Lysander also becomes informed of who becomes informed here. Lysander. Is it? it, I thought Alex was the one who gets the information that Darrow Hmm. survived. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Alexander that really gets the information that Darrow's made. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But regardless, I mean, what a, what a kind of moment where it's like, I knew the boss was going to make it right. That's what it is. Totally. Like right Mm -hmm. at the end. Told you guys the boss was going to make it. Right. And that's, that's kind of where we end the week. Did you have any other thoughts on this week's reading? Dude, I, I just, I couldn't stop rereading it. I read this a few times and I was just like going through and listening to it throughout my work days. And like, while I was doing home, like, uh, not homework work on, on my home. So it's kind of <laughs> homework, but like, home improvement. Like I just <laughs> kept listening to it. It was so much fun to listen to this section. Like, and it's a lot of Lysander. Like I didn't realize how much Lysander this was until I picked it up to do the notes. And yeah, I was like, oh, it's a lot of oh, Lysander. Right. This is a ton of Lysander, but yeah. But this is by far, by far and away, I think, my favorite book I've ever read. And we're well, not even halfway through it. So, yeah. Yep. I mean, for the show, you've read like, at this point, nearly seven books. So, yeah, almost seven books. That's basically the same number for the last decade. Yeah. So, Other than like, rec- no, it it is. Ah, uh, no, it's not. I've, I've read a couple books. Yeah. A couple. Not there. many. But yeah, this is this is the peak of what I've read so far, as far as I can yep. remember. I mean, obviously well, the classics. Like I re- I've read a lot of the classics from different classes in college and high school and all that. But right, as far as right. things older than fifteen hundred go, <laughs> this is pretty pretty much the pinnacle so far. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, good, when, when was when was the Odyssey written? Do you, do you expect me to know the publication date of the Odyssey, PJ? Is that what yes, you're asking me? I want the the actual date, like day, hour, if you have it. Eighth century BCE. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, published in English, though, in 1614. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, all I'm saying is I really fucking like this book, Crossland. Ah, and yes. Fuck yes, you it. for giving me things that... <laughs> I like to read. No, it's good. I'm I'm glad that you are enjoying this <laughs> this book and this story. It's a bit crazy. All told, PJ, I just have to real quickly before we jump into your predictions. I need to talk about my drink. Okay. I've drank half of it. Shit. It's a lot, but I'm gonna finish it right now. Okay. Uh you finish it while I'm talking about my predictions. So is it does that sound fair? Or are you finishing it right fucking now? I hear gulping. It's gone. <clears throat> Jesus, Crossland. Oh. All right, we better, we better get through this. <laughs> yeah, we've got a ticking time bomb right now. All right. PJ's predictions. Ephraim, I think he's going to make it. But I think it's going to be in a similar way to the way Jack Burton makes it in some of his fights. He's going to get knocked mm-hmm. down. And then by the time he finally gets up ready to fight, he is uh, going to have missed the battle. So he's going to basically wake up ready to ready to fuck shit up and uh, battles done and obsidians have been victorious. So okay. Lysander, right. I think he and the Arcosian Knights will find a way to escape their per- current predicament. Together, they'll fight a Hydra on their way through the desert. <laughs> Um, you really want to work in that Hydra, huh? Absolutely, I want to work in the Hydra, Crossland. Why would I want not want to work in the Hydra? So, I mean, it would fit in with kind of the Her- Herculean theme. 
we've got going on. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, cool. Those are your predictions for the week. Folks, if you guys have any predictions that you want PJ to make, feel free to email them to us at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com or send them to us on Instagram or Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. Or if you're in our Discord, send them there. Yeah, that'd that'd be pretty cool. Pretty cool. I think I've got six outsourced from people yet to they're like three batches of two some coming at the very end and some kind of over the next couple of weeks but if you have any ideas any questions we'd love to hear from you we'd love these you know to have your guys's predictions be inside of this because i'm very bad at writing this myself like i'm i'm gonna be straight up with you guys i am bad at this so if you guys give me questions i'm gonna i'm gonna do a lot better (laughs) (laughs) like we kind of did last week so yeah Exactly. So with that, let's get into the the first of our questions of the week. So last week's question that we asked and sent out for responses, uh, we want to hear from you. What is one of your favorite speeches delivered by a fictional character and why? So we're going to run through the answers here and rotate between the two of us, just kind of reading what we were sent. Most of these are going to be from our Patreon because a lot of those folks responded almost immediately. We'd love to hear from you. Again, you can email in responses. You can send them on Twitter. You can send them on Instagram. You can join our Patreon and send them directly to me, whichever way works best for you. So first up here is Donna, one of our patrons. There are just so many possibilities, but one from one of my most recent reads is Corbin's speech at the end of Wrath by John Gwynn right before the final battle. It is simple, stirring, and is the culmination of his journey from a boy to the leader he has become. This day we will live or die, but whatever the outcome, this will still be the day we avenge ourselves of those we've lost. The day we right the wrongs done to us or die in the trying. It will be a dark day, a bloody day, a proud day, for this is the day of our wrath. That's a great one. Love Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. Uh, Next one. Tim Pearson. Mine probably changes every day. Thanks, Tim. That's not helpful. Uh, (laughs) Mine probably changes every day. I think mine are all from film. Partially, I think that the acting adds additional emphasis for me and i think film offers so many opportunities to the perfect take i think the your move chief scene from goodwill hunting does that part so well the writing is great robin williams delivers it perfectly it escalates to show will how even though he's a genius he doesn't truly understand the world or people yet because he hasn't experienced them and likewise dr mccree mcquire mcquire i think so mcquire i think i'm so bad at reading out loud crossland like this is yeah, not something we've done in this. a while. Um, can't help him unless Will lets him on specific on similar topics. I think it establishes respect and understanding between the two characters, and also drives a perfect point home for Will. Will eventually even follows the words of Doctor McQuire and goes to see the world in the end. I also love that it emphasizes how we all have our own battles that we're fighting. And you should never assume you know someone truly. Also, Jules final monologue about Ezekiel twenty five seventeen in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, to append to that as well, uh, Tim also mentioned one of my favorite speeches from Shawshank Redemption, the get bu- get busy living or get busy dying, which is also fantastic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. With 
yeah i mean i i can't help but agree i love this was this was in like my top five as i was thinking through scenes i also <laughs> was sticking and almost also picked another um robin williams scene from uh, dead poet society which is just yeah anyway we, he was given a number of different inspirational scenes and moments in a number of movies and i think that it was uh so it's a good choice. It's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With that, we have from Ivana, one of our patrons as well, Atticus Finch's speech. You cannot judge a man until you walk a mile in his shoes from To Kill a Mockingbird is a fantastic one. She also made mention of Forrest Gump. There's only one thing I have to say about Vietnam, <laughs> which is also a great moment. Could not agree more. Mm-hmm. Both are very good. Of course. We've got another patron, Cloud, from Futurama, when God is addressing Bender. When you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. Wonderful quote. And I think how God would probably actually feel like things go, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I am going next with mine, and I'm very excited because, I mean, I know that you haven't watched The Leftovers. I have not. But... I think that this is a like I've, I've mentioned this before in the show that it is my favorite show of all time. So this is from a character, Lori Garvey, and from the final episode of the first season. But it, it again, this show is so much about emotionality where I don't feel like I'm, you know, really spoiling anything here. And maybe it won't fully make sense. But from the prodigal son returns. But I was pretending, pretending as if I hadn't lost everything. I want to believe I can go. It can all go back to the way that it was. I want to believe that I'm not surrounded by the abandoned ruin of a dead civilization. I want to believe it's still possible to get close to someone, but it's easier not to. It's easier because I'm a coward and I couldn't take the pain. Not again. I know that's not fair, Kevin. You've lost so much, too, and you're strong. You're still here, but I can't be. Not anymore. I tried to get better, Kevin. I didn't want to feel this way, so I took a shortcut, but it led me right back home. And do you know what I found when I got there? I found them, Kevin, right where I left them, right where they left me. It took me three years to accept the truth, but now I know there's no going back, no fixing it. I'm beyond repair. Maybe we're all beyond repair. I can't go on the way I'm living, but I don't have the power to die. But I have to move forward towards something, anything. I'm not sure where I'm going, just away, away from all of this. I think about a place where nobody will know what happened to me, but then I'll, I worry I'll forget them. I don't ever want to forget them. I can't. They were my family. Again, context is very important. (laughs) So not a whole lot of that makes sense as a backup (laughs) to that. Just in general, um, PJ also made mention of this inside of our discord, but the intro newsroom speech that Jeff Daniels gives written by Aaron Sorkin is fucking brilliant about American exceptionalism and how we aren't anymore and what, what made America exceptional at the time. And yeah, very, very great speech, I think as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that was a very close set. Uh, I don't even, I don't even know if it would be second to this, but it was another one of the standout favorites of mine, but um, yeah. so what's yours? Mine is from the stairs of, uh, Sirith Ungol in uh, The Two Towers, Lord of the Rings. Sam talking to Frodo. Yes, that's so, said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about what we've known more about it before we started. But I suppose that's often the way. The brave things in the old tales and the songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures as I used to call them. 
I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered, the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they did, we shouldn't know it, or we shouldn't know because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they might be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Why'd so. you pick that one? Because it highlights what a story is, I feel like. How the the truth of story comes about. And there are all of these exceptional stories and essentially none of them matter if they don't go through with it. Like we were we were talking about Lysander and the and the farm. If he had just stopped and just decided to live there or turn back or just hole up there until he like until things get better, we wouldn't even hear about Lysander at all because he wouldn't fucking matter because it's not an exciting to- story to tell. I don't know. I I just I've I've always liked that quote. A or that speech. I love that quote. B. I would also extend even your your conversation about the Lysander metaphor out to the conversation that we were also having about the myth and the myth that you earn as you complete your story, right? Which is also the myth of war. And this even has the understanding, Sam's perspective here even has the understanding of going through whatever that war, whatever that journey is to kind of arrive at the end and become a myth to make it a story. And I I love it as well. That's why I was just like, I was curious on your sort of read into it and, and i think it all th- fits this passage and this speech goes beyond and goes goes farther and this is where frodo talks about how like there wouldn't be a, a mr frodo without sam like mm-hmm. th- this is where frodo expresses to sam how important he was to the entire adventure this whole chunk is super super good yeah without a doubt so with that that is all of the responses that we see- received from lax La- wow it's catching up with me already. Okay, so that is all of the responses that we received from last week. For next week, what's your favorite moment of rest or respite given to a character in a story and why? Thinking about those moments that we were just talking about, even kind of as the reflection from Bilbo, talking about here inside the Lysander story, thinking about the Green Knight and the house or the mansion, the manor. What what are some of your favorite examples from literature of that break that moment that rest that campfire let us know yeah with that next week we'll be reading it chapter 44 through 50 so we've got six chapters up next week solid little bit 60 pages back at it so that's where we'll leave you for this week thank you as always, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. Check out the show notes. You've got our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, website, socials, everything, all in one spot. It's wonderful. 
It's super awesome. Tim has actually put a lot of fun work into the website of late, especially tracking people and as they kind of join the Patreon and help out. It actually tracks on each episode and puts your name on each and every episode that you go through and support on our website and tags them since you joined. So it's a fantastic little note. Your little thank you credit on the end of each episode permanently emblazoned on our website and whatever name or title you'd like to be called, which is fantastic. Beyond that, check out our Patreon, words and patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Uh, we are definitely having a heck of a month in terms of total production. We've got a lot of fun things coming out for the rest of the month. We've got live shows. We've got a couple of other podcasts yet to come out, including one that I'm very excited about talking about Blink-182 and their legacy on music. So... Thank you so much for all the support. It really means the world to us. We're stoked, of course, and can't wait to see you next week. Love you all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.